our fifth Grace Basics question. Last fall, we introduced a series of questions and answers to help us better understand and remember our doctrinal statement. Each month, we're reviewing a different question. July, we come to the fifth question. So I'll read the question. I ask you to respond with the answer. The question is, how is the Bible to be received? It is to be believed and obeyed in all that it teaches. And James chapter 1 verse, 21, uh, verse 22 gives us some biblical support for that. So let's, give, let's recite that together. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And that's what we're going to pray right now is that we will believe and receive what God has for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are speaking God. You have not left us on our own to figure out who you are or who we are to be in relationship with you, but you've spoken clearly and powerfully through your word. But Lord, we confess, I confess, that there are times that we don't understand. I don't understand and I don't apply as I should the truth of your word. And so we need your spirit even now to help us. Lord, send your spirit, help us to understand, to believe, to obey what your word teaches. In Jesus' name. Amen. What would you say is the defining mark of a Christian? If you could pick one attribute that should be most evident in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, what would you say? I would suggest that it's love. As Christians, more than anything else, we should be known for love. Love for God, love for our neighbors, even love for our enemies, and in noticeable ways, love for one another. On the night before his death, Jesus was with his disciples, and in John chapter 13, he tells them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, of course, love is not unique to Christianity. Other people love. But these verses suggest that there should be something so compelling about how Christians love one another that, in the words of Pastor Sam Alberry, it makes the reality of the gospel unignorable to the outside world. Or as the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer writes in his book, The Mark of the Christian, Jesus is giving the world permission to judge whether we are true Christian disciples on the basis of whether we love one another. This morning, as we continue our study of 1 Peter, we're going to reflect on this obligation that Christians have to love, and particularly to love one another, because we come now to chapter 1, verse 22, where Peter issues the command to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If you've been with us for a while, you know Pastor Gordon has been leading us through the study of 1 Peter, and this is the fourth in a series of commands that Peter gives after first rejoicing in the wonderful salvation that God has given us. That, that exaltation of salvation is in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And then beginning in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, that is, in light of this salvation that is so spectacular, preparing your minds for action 
being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For Christians, our hope is not in this life. Our confidence, our peace does not come from material prosperity or financial security, material, uh, material wealth, relational harmony, physical health, political stability. Those things are all wonderful. But our hope is found in the blessings that God is going to lavish upon us when his son returns in glory. And until that happens, we're going to seek to do all we can to honor him. As Peter puts it in his second command in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. In everything you do, may it be marked by your commitment to love and follow God. And those who want to be holy like God need to be in awe of him, to give him ultimate regard of every aspect of their life. That's what it means to fear him. And that's Peter's third command in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. That is fear, reverence, awe of God throughout your time of exile. Be hopeful in God. Be holy like God. Be fearful of God. Those are the first three commands that Peter gives, and they all focus on a Christian's relationship with God. The next command, one we're considering today, concerns our relationships with one another. We're called to be loving like God toward God's people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Peter writes, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for, for the purpose of, or the result of a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, to the living and abiding Word of God. The main verb of this passage is love. Love one another. And sorry to get grammatical on you this morning, especially for those students. You're like, I got a break from English. Here you're bringing up English. So you remember what participle is? It's a, it's a helping verb. It's a participle. It's a, it's a verbal clause. And so there are two verbal clauses that help support this, this command to love. They, uh, they modify the main verb. They explain how it's to be fulfilled. And the first one is having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And the second one is since you have been or since you, ha- uh, yeah, ha- since you have been born again by the living, abiding Word of God. I put it in a little bit simpler form. Here's a layout that helps you see how those verbs fit together. So the main command is love one another earnestly, and that's supported by the two statements of being purified and being born again. And we notice that in these supporting clauses, there's a reference to the Word of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, and having been born again through the Word of God, which as we'll see, Peter goes on to describe as a seed, which he calls the gospel. So in this passage, Peter is teaching that the gospel is necessary for Christian love. Or to put it a little differently, the fruit of Christian love cannot be produced apart from the seed of the gospel. And that's, that's really the main idea of this passage, the main idea that we'll be exploring this morning. The fruit of Christian love cannot be produced apart from the seed of the gospel. And we're going to take this in three parts. I'm going to look at the the three verbs in this passage. So we're going to start by looking at this idea of loving one another earnestly. And what are the characteristics of love that Peter is describing? Then we'll talk about what it means to 
have been born again, having been born again, that's the foundation of love. And we'll finish with the phrase, having purified your souls, which is something that is necessary for love. So the characteristics of love that we're going to consider first are found in verse 22. And those characteristics are love needs to be sacrificial, familial, strenuous, and genuine. That's point number one in the sermon notes. And the first characteristic that should mark our love as Christians is it is to be sacrificial. Now in our culture, when we think about love, talk about love, it's usually strongly directed toward a feeling of having a strong feeling of affection for someone. Think of fiancés who just got engaged and they say, I, I love you. What do they mean? I, I'm attracted to you. I have this feeling of affection for you. I, I, I want to be with you. I, I long for you. The biblical view of love, while it doesn't ignore feelings, is focused primarily on willing, sacrificial action that is undertaken for the benefit of another. In the New Testament, written in Greek, the word that's most often translated love is agape, or in its verbal form, found here, is agapao. And that's used repeatedly to describe God's love and Christ's love for us. To give just one example, from Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, walk in love, agape, as Christ loved, agapao, us, and gave himself up for us. So how did Jesus Christ love us? Did he, did he love us because, oh, I just have these warm, burning feelings for you? Yes, perhaps, but he, gave, he loved us by giving himself for us. And now that's how we're supposed to love others. Christ gave himself for us, and we walk in love by giving of ourselves, sacrificing ourselves, our preferences, our desires, our time, our resources for the sake of others. That's agape love. Counselor Tim Kimmel defines love as the commitment of my will to your needs and best interests regardless of the cost. So love is to be sacrificial. We've experienced agape love from God. We are called now to express agape love to others, to the whole world, and in particular special ways to one another because we are brothers and sisters of the same spiritual family. That brings us to the second characteristic of love that's mentioned by Peter. And that is, it is to be familial. That is, it's a love that is expressed between family members. Peter has referred to his readers in verse 14 as obedient children. He says of them in verse 16 that you all call on him as father. Well, if Christians are all children of the same father, what does that make them in relationship to one another? Makes them brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters of the same spiritual family. And in, in verse 22, Peter alludes to that when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Brotherly love and loving one another are parallel expressions. And, and this idea of Philadelphia, that's the brotherly love is Philadelphia, which we recognize in English as Philadelphia. Philadelphia is known as the city of, yeah, if you go there, maybe not so much. But whether or not, whether or not brotherly love is expressed in that city, it's absolutely supposed to be expressed in the church. 
like a good earthly family, those who are in the same spiritual family are supposed to accept one another and care for one another. And this is all exclusive. Think about this. Every other follower of Jesus Christ is your spiritual brother and sister. Every single one. Now, that means you're called, we're called to love one another. It doesn't matter if our spiritual brother and sister is a, a different race, a different age, nationality, cultural background, different education level, different economic condition, different political affiliation, or any other distinguishing mark they might have. He or she is our brother or sister in Christ, and we're called to love them. Now, in our busy individualistic culture, it's difficult to build relationships of mutual love between brothers and sisters in Christ. It, just, it is. It's hard in our culture. But, but it's something our church strives to do. We say in our vision statement that we exist to glorify God by forging a loving family of believers whose greatest joy and core identity is in Jesus Christ. So if you're new to our church and you want to know what we're trying to do, that's it. We're trying to do that. And some of the ways that we try to forge this loving family is something as simple as wearing name tags. Now, I know some of you don't like name tags. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, we do that so that we can know each other's names, right? Because it's hard to love someone if you don't even, can't even dress them by name. That's why we have some events like Dinners with Grace. Share a meal with somebody. Spend two or three hours with them. You get to know them in a deeper way. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is teaching. There are throngs of people around him. His mother and brothers come to see him. And they can't get to him. So word is sent. Your mother and brothers are here to see you. And Jesus responds, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now with this statement, Jesus is not disparaging or disregarding or disrespecting his earthly family. But what he is doing is highlighting the significance of his spiritual family. Brothers and sisters, we need to do the same thing. Because we are called by God to love one another with a sincere brotherly love. Now, I, I love the fact that Peter acknowledges that this is going to be hard. It's going to require effort. Because what he tells his readers to do is love one another earnestly. And he does it not only here, but he repeats this command in uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This brings us to the third characteristic of love commanded in this verse. It's to be strenuous. The adverb that is translated earnestly is based on a verb that means to stretch out. The verb is used in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus says to a man with a crippled hand, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored. Peter is calling Christians to stretch themselves out in love for one another. One commentator puts it like this. We're to love not lightly, but as it were, with straining. Love among Christians, love in this room, needs to be vigorous, determined, and persistent. And this is because if we're honest, let's be honest, Okay, sometimes it's hard to love other Christians, right? I should be seeing nodding heads. Come on. Some of you actually told me that, so I know it's true. 
Sometimes we find it hard for whatever reason to love a particular brother or sister in Christ. Might be that they're a little immature emotionally. Might be that they're kind of cold and hard to approach. Maybe they have some annoying character trait. Maybe they have this strongly held conviction that's different than ours. Maybe they seem too self-focused and not able to think about others. Or maybe they're just weird. I don't know. It's just hard. And so whatever it is, we have no warrant to withhold love from them or treat them with indifference. Because we have been called to demonstrate strenuous love. To love one another earnestly. And this strenuous, earnest love must also be genuine. Peter refers to this idea twice in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So both at the beginning and end of this discussion of love, there's this idea of genuineness. Demonstrating love that is sincere and from a pure heart does not mean that it's always accompanied by warm feelings of affection. As we've just seen, sometimes love is just hard work. It's strenuous. So this, in, in these situations when it's strenuous, we may not feel particularly loving toward our brother or sister. But sincerity and purity of heart does not refer so much to the feelings behind our love, but rather to the motives. Why am I expressing love? What's my intention? Do I want to feel good about myself? Am I trying to impress somebody? Am I trying to earn God's favor? Do I want to avoid criticism from the person I'm serving? I want to get them off my back by doing what they've asked? Am I hoping to get something in return for what I do? Peter will tell his readers in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And in the Greek language, the word for sincere is literally unhypocritical. It's, it's the word hypocrisy with the word un in front of it, or not. So it's to be non-hypocritical. We tend to think of hypocrisy as somebody saying one thing and doing another. But really, the biblical idea of love is somebody saying and doing something and having a different motive. Their motive doesn't match their action. So they're maybe saying something kind, doing something loving, but their motive for doing it is not for the good of the other person. Peter says our love needs to be unhypocritical. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be motivated by a desire to see good done to the other person. Love that's genuine, strenuous, familial, and sacrificial will necessarily have a beautiful effect wherever it is displayed. And how I pray that that kind of love just continues to multiply in our church family. But it's not a love that comes naturally to any human being because we're innately turned inward on ourselves. We don't have the ability to produce that kind of love with simple human effort. So how is it possible to express that kind of love that's described in verse 22? It's only by experiencing new life through the gospel. That's the foundation of biblical love. And if you're following along in the sermon notes, that's point number two. The foundation of love is new life through the seed of the gospel. 
after giving the command in verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, Peter continues, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In these verses, I don't think Peter is explaining why Christians should be loving. He's explaining why Christians can be loving. We can be loving because we've been born again. God has given us new spiritual life. This reference to being born again is one that Peter has already mentioned. He expressed at the very beginning of his letter in his exuberant description of salvation. The first thing he writes in chapter 1, verse 3, is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why are we praising God? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Note an obvious but important point. We don't give ourselves new spiritual life. Being born again is not accomplished by us. It's something done to us and for us. God is the one who has caused us to be born again. The theological term for this is regeneration. And regeneration has a transforming effect on the lives of those who experience it. Because by His Spirit, God gives His people a new desire and a new ability to obey what He commands. This idea of being born again, slightly different word, but it's talked about in John chapter 3. Jesus tells a Jewish leader named Nicodemus, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus is confused what that phrase born again means. And so Jesus says a couple verses later, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. By comparing these two statements, we can see that being born again means being born of water and the Spirit. Those are equivalent expressions. And that phrase, being born of water and the Spirit, is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, where God promises what He'll do when He brings salvation to His people. Ezekiel chapter 36, God tells them, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Sometimes salvation gets explained and presented as nothing more than the forgiveness of sins. As if the only thing that happens in, in salvation is God cleanses us from all our uncleanliness. Now, I do not for one moment want to diminish that. That is a wonderful blessing of salvation, probably the most important blessing of salvation because it restores our relationship with God. But there's more to it than that because God's intent is not only to forgive us, He wants to change us. And He does that through the work of His Spirit whom he puts within us when he regenerates us. And it's God's spirit dwelling within us who empowers us to love the way we should. In Galatians chapter 5, 
Paul calls believers in Galatia to walk, that is to live by the Spirit. Live according to the influence of the Spirit in your life. And then he mentions the fruit of the Spirit. And the first characteristics he mentioned in the list of fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The reason that Christians are able to demonstrate sacrificial, familial, strenuous, genuine love is because they've been born of God's Spirit. He's the one who empowers us to love like He loves. Now, God is the one who, by His Spirit, causes His people to be born again. And He does that through, by means of, the Word of God. And in particular, by the Gospel. Let's look again at verse 23. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, to the living and abiding Word of God. Here, new life that God is giving is described in agricultural terms. We have lots of farmers in the room. We know how this works. Farmers sow a seed into the ground. The result is the life of a new plant. And so when God puts the seed of his word into us, it creates new spiritual life. Verse 24, Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. This is such an important, encouraging verse. All flesh refers to all humanity, all people. And its glory is the wisdom, beauty, strength, vigor, wealth, and health of mankind. It's all the things that get promoted in the glossy magazine ads. It's all the things that pop up when you're searching the internet. You need this thing. You need this. This will make you happy. This is the most wonderful thing in the world if you only have whatever it is. The glory of man. As impressive as those things may be, as much as we wish to have them, the reality is that all the glory that we see in other people, think of the most beautiful, successful, talented person in the world. All the glory we ourselves experience, it's nothing more than a fading flower that's soon going to pass away. And the older I get, the more I see it <laughs> and experience it in my body. By quoting Psalm uh, Isaiah chapter 40, Peter is highlighting the frailty and impotence of humanity and human effort and accomplishment, and he's contrasting that with the eternally potent Word of God. And then he adds, this Word, this Word of the Lord that reigns forever, is the good news that was preached to you. And that phrase, good news that was preached, is the verbal form of a word that's usually translated in the, in the New Testament as gospel. And so the, the word Peter's talking about is the gospel that was preached to you. Peter's saying it's only by embracing the life-giving message of the gospel, having that seed planted within us, that we'll experience new life from God that results in having both a desire and an ability to love as he commands. Or to summarize it, as we did at the very beginning, the fruit of Christian love cannot be produced 
apart from the seed of the gospel. So friends, if you examine your life, you think about some of the relationships you have, especially some of the hard relationships that you're in, if you find that there's little, if any, genuine, strenuous, familial, sacrificial love, if you find honestly in your heart, you know what, I, I really don't care about them. If you're unwilling to stretch yourself out and give yourself willingly, sacrificially to others for their good, it's likely because you've never responded to the gospel. You might know its content. You might understand that Jesus died on the cross, rose again to free you from your sins. That's an intellectual truth you know, but you've never responded to it. You never made it your own. And therefore, you aren't experiencing the new life that God gives only through the gospel. But I have wonderful news for you today. You, you can. That can be your experience. Even now, this very moment, call on Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. Acknowledge, as Peter's going to say later in chapter 2, that he bore your sins in his body on the cross that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. If you call on Jesus Christ, God's the seed of God's word will be planted in your heart, you'll start to change. You'll start to grow. God's love will start to be displayed in your life. And if you have some questions about that, what does it mean to have new life from God? How can I call on Christ like that? Please get in touch with me or with Pastor Gordon. It'll be our great joy to talk with you some more about that. The foundation of love is new life through the seed of the gospel. That's the only way we're ever going to love. But in order to develop a lifestyle of love, the implications of the gospel need to be lived out, fleshed out in our daily lives. And that's what we're going to focus on now as we consider necessity for love. Point number three in the sermon notes, the necessity for love, as what we need to be lo loving people, is purification through obedience to the truth of the gospel. Necessity for love is purification through obedience to the truth of the gospel. Basically, what this means is we need to apply in our lives this gospel message. Returning to verse 22, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, and based on the following verses, I think the truth he has in mind there is the truth of the gospel. So you've purified your souls by obedience to the truth for or unto, for the purpose of, as a result of a sincere and brotherly love. Since that's happened, therefore, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. Now, in verse 23, as we've noted, Peter describes what has been done for us. We have been born again. A little more grammar here. That's in the passive voice. God is the active agent. He's the one who acts on our behalf to give us new spiritual life. But notice in verse 22, the action is ours. Peter doesn't say, your souls have been purified by God, but you having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So there's two basic ways that Bible scholars understand verse 22. First, some suggest that phrase, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, basically means... You purified your souls when you believed the gospel. So that was your part. You believed the gospel and your soul got purified. 
Understood in that way, Peter's emphasizing the human side of conversion. We obey, we believe the gospel. Verse 23 is emphasizing the divine side of salvation. God is the active agent. He's the one who gives us new life. He, it's through him that we're born again. Another view of this phrase in verse 22 says, that's not referring to our initial purification at the time of our conversion when we believe the gospel. Rather, it's referring to growth and moral purity that followed our conversion as we lived out the implications of the gospel. And for three reasons, I think that's a better interpretation of the phrase. So let me give you reasons why I think that's the way we should interpret it. First, because note that this statement implies we are the actors. We are the ones who purify our souls by our obedience to the truth. However, we're not the active agents of our salvation in terms of we're not the ones who initially purify our souls at conversion. God is the one who does that. If Peter were referring to the purification we receive at conversion when we first believed the gospel, he would have used the passive voice like he did in verse 23 and said something like, since your souls were purified when you obeyed the truth. But that's not what he says. Second related reason for thinking this phrase refers to purification that is subsequent to salvation and not at the time of salvation is because other biblical authors use the word purification in that same way. For example, John writes in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John is reminding us of our incredible status. We are children of God. And he's pointing forward and saying, and the best is yet to come because when, when Jesus comes back, we're going to be like him and it's going to be spectacular. We're going we're to share his character exactly. And therefore, the, if we have that future hope, what do we do now? We purify ourselves now. So something we actively do in this life is we wait for the appearing of Christ. So he's clearly talking to Christians following their conversion. And so is James in James chapter 4 verse 8. He's writing to people who are quarreling and bickering and fighting because they have different sets of unmet needs and you're not meeting my needs and I'm not meeting your needs and so they're, they're fighting. And his response is, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts of those selfish motives, you double-minded. So again, that's a, this, uh, he's talking to believers. A third reason for interpreting the phrase the way I do is because of the word obedience. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. I think obedience is better understood as denoting behavior rather than belief, especially since Peter's just addressed his readers as obedient children, which is a reference to their behavior because he goes on to tell them to not be conformed to their former passions. So, sorry for that little... Uh, that little side trip there to, to pin down why I think in verse 22, Peter is talking about not what happens to us at conversion, but what happens to us after conversion. Christians purify their souls by obedience to the truth, and that helps them to love one another as brothers and sisters. Well, if that's the case, it raises a couple questions. First, what do our souls need to be purified from? And secondly, how do we do it? As for the need for purification, that's alluded to in verse 14. 
where Peter says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he's talking about before we were Christians, we had certain desires. Before we had new spiritual life from God, our desires were controlled by what we wanted. We were basically self-serving. We live by the motto, I want what I want, when I want it, and if you get in the way of what I want, there's going to be trouble. Now, those selfish passions, unfortunately, don't just disappear the moment we become Christians. Wouldn't that be nice if they did, if we never again were that selfish? However, once God gives us new spiritual life through His Spirit by means of His Word, we now have the ability to resist those passions. And that's what Peter is calling believers to do in verse 14, to not be conformed, not let those passions shape how we live. So that's why we need to be purified, because until we die... We're, we're going to be fighting that monster all the time. Every morning we wake up and there's going to be something inside that says, live for yourself today. Make sure everyone around you does exactly what they, you want them to do all the time. And if not, you know, give them a cold shoulder, give them a dirty look. Make sure you, they know that you're not happy, that they haven't done what you want them to do. Right. Every day we wake up with that. We have to fight against it. We won't always praise the Lord, but until Christ comes, we do. So that's why we need to be purified. How do we do that? How do we purify our souls from selfishness? Well, we do it by obedience to the truth. Isn't that what he says? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere and brotherly love. So the truth is the message of the gospel and that truth we need to apply to our lives. The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He died on the cross as our substitute. Three days later, he rose triumphantly from the grave. And that message is the basis of our salvation, but it's more than that. It's also the model we are called to follow as we live this life. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is foretelling his impending death. He says to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. So there's the message of, what's the basis of our salvation? Christ's death and resurrection. What's the very next thing Jesus says? And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is telling anyone who wants to be his disciple, Anyone who wants to claim the name of Christ, anyone who wants to say, I'm a Christian, needs to follow in his footsteps. He died for us. Now as his disciples, we need to die to ourselves. That's what it means to take up our cross daily. This has sometimes been called cruciform living. That is, a life that is formed or shaped by the cross. A cruciform life is one in which a follower of Christ makes the choice day after day, morning after morning, to resist the pull of their own self-centered desires so that they can serve others. This is what Paul urges Christians to do in Philippians chapter 2. He writes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He goes on to say that we should adopt the attitude of Christ. Christ gave up his rights. He gave up his privileges to serve us. And it's only as we do that, it's only as we develop the daily habit of modeling our lives after Christ, taking up our cross, dying to ourselves, that we're able to love as God commands. And for this reason, we need to regularly be preaching the gospel to ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves because it reminds us that our relationship with God is secure, not based on what we have done, our good deeds, even our loving deeds. It's based solely on what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross for our sins. Praise God. But as we meditate on the cross, the gospel, it also provides us with a pattern for how we are to live. And it's by following that pattern obeying the truth of the gospel, their souls are purified for a sincere and brotherly love. So brothers and sisters, if you're convinced that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord, you know I've repented of my sins, I've called on Him for my salvation, but you see your love life stunted, and maybe there are some times when you, you don't really want to show love to others, especially to other Christians, I would encourage you, please don't simply exhort yourself to be more loving. Don't tell yourself, try harder, be better. Instead, turn your attention to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's the seed of the gospel. First, planted in our lives and then nourished in the life of the believer that produces the fruit of Christian love. It's the seed of the gospel and only the seed of the gospel that will produce lovely fruit, the fruit of love among us. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that in your goodness and kindness to us, you have forgiven our sins through your son, Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that in that great redemptive act, you've not only cleansed us, but you have also begun this work of transforming us. We long for the day that Jesus returns in glory and we become like him and we never again have to fight against sin and selfishness. But Lord, until then, we do. And we're thankful that you've put your spirit within us. We're thankful that you've given us the truth of your word and the pattern of the gospel to do that. So I pray that you would encourage us, help us, stimulate us to do that so that we might be a loving family, a family of brothers and sisters in Christ who love each other well and who show off the gospel to the watching world. In Jesus' name, amen.